Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Vet Talk. Um, for today's discussion, um, we're going to try to focus on a topic, uh, disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, which is a, a somewhat challenging, a complex syndrome. Um, and just so everybody knows, I, I, my idea for this is to focus on you know fairly basic information so that um, a typical veterinary student can, can get something out of this. And I think that's something that um, we've talked about trying to do a little bit more of is is focusing on topics that are relevant or interesting or helpful for veterinary students. So if you've got a topic that you find confusing or interesting, you just want to hear more about it, um, contact us and we should have all that information at the end, but we can we can throw it out hey, here now. Email us at veterinaryjournalclub at gmail.com yeah. or go on our Instagram or Twitter, which are at vet. Journal Club. Yeah, the abbreviated version. You should already yes. be following us. <laughs> yeah, yes, you should definitely harass people into following us. Um, so uh, just a quick reminder, uh, you know, I'm an emergency critical care specialist, but I really nerd out about hemostasis things, coagulation things. Um, my husband is a nerd about a lot of things, but he is not a veterinarian. Um, but what he is is producer on the show and is my sounding board when we have, uh, when yeah. we do these talks so that it's not just me I know that that's talking. blood. Sort of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, 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 yes, it is part of that the blood. That is the extent of my knowledge. <laughs> yes. So um, some of the questions that you ask will be maybe even more basic, but I, I think that's okay. I think, um, you know, it'll, it'll be good for this topic. So I'm going to start by just going into what DIC is, or again. Well, first, oh, sorry. first, we should all have a laugh about the acronym just to get it out of the way. Really? So that we don't, Yeah. It was one of my astronomy professors. He had a funny last name, too. And he was like, oh, hey, let's all laugh that this isn't my name. Okay. That we don't have to do it the rest of the year. Oh, okay. So uh-huh, everybody uh-huh. have a good laugh. I think this is the <laughs> laugh button. I don't think it worked. Oh, yeah, that's more appropriate. Yeah, that's actually more appropriate because it's just, we just, we say D-I-C. Nobody says dick. Nobody, we say D-I-C stands for, nope. again. Wow. There it is. I think the laughter was for your your lack of knowledge about where the laughter button was more than anything. We don't use okay. it enough yet. All right. So, <laughs> all right. Disseminated intravascular coagulation. And I, my husband is a, a, an adult. I just want to clarify that. <laughs> um, usually. All right. So, disseminated intravascular coagulation. First off, it is a syndrome, not a disease. And that's an important distinction. And um, just if you want to remember what, you know, the difference between a disease and a syndrome is, a disease is a fairly well-defined entity with a known cause, right? So, um, you know, probably some of the easiest things to wrap your brain around are something infectious, right? So if a dog gets parvovirus, it has been diagnosed with the disease. It has a a cause, a particular virus that causes um, a fairly predictable set of symptoms, uh, you know, certain types of cancer. If you get diagnosed with lymphoma, that is your a diagnosis. You have that disease. Syndromes are a constellation of signs, you know, a group of symptoms that, you know, sort of come together and can have somewhat predictable um, 
uh, outcomes or, or, you know, the kind of what happens in the course of the syndrome, but there's not a specific, oh, this is the cause. And another feature that I think is helpful um, when I think about disease versus syndrome is a disease usually, hopefully not always, has some sort of test. We do this test. It might not be a perfect test, but in theory, there is a test that we do that says, yes, you have this disease or no, you don't. Um, That's a a bit of an oversimplification, but it helps me. Whereas a syndrome doesn't. Um, A syndrome, there is no one test that I can do to be like, oh yeah. Um, And and even in theory, there's not like a test you could even think of. Like you can imagine an infectious disease that, you know, we haven't identified the virus, but in theory, if we knew what was causing this, we we could test for it. Can a syndrome ever become a disease? Like it's like, oh yeah, it's been this all along. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. And a good example of that would be something like, well, hemorrhagic gastroenteritis, which people have renamed acute hem- diarrhea. I don't remember even what the new name is. Acute hemorrhagic diarrhea syndrome, something like that. Um, and people have tried to look for a specific cause and so far haven't really found anything that people are convinced. Yeah, this kind of seems but like everything initially yes. would be a, a syndrome. syndrome and then yeah. once you um, learn more about it. I, I don't think DIC is actually ever going to be one of those. And yeah. we can talk about that. So sometimes, but yes, a lot of the times it might be like, oh, we just don't know enough to know why this is happening. The other thing is um, it can be something that happens secondary to a primary disease. Um, and so there's some things that can go wrong in the lungs um, that can be caused by a number of different things, but then you get this offshoot. And DIC is kind of like that. So um, the when you think about... DIC is a syndrome, um, and, and we'll talk about what the, the common you know, features are of that. But it's important to know that this is always secondary to another primary disease. Are syndromes treatable like diseases are? Kind of like That's a, a disease, there's a, there's a treatment of syndrome. You're saying there's not a specific known thing. So, so I would say, it, I'm trying to think of all the, the things that I would call syndromes. I would say generally no, um, not a specific treatment. Yeah, they're not there isn't treat, a specific you can't disease. cure it, you just have to right. deal with it. Right, So in the case of DIC... So they're more usually chronic, which I think was in the... They don't have to be chronic. Know. DIC actually wouldn't fall under chronic, actually. Um, so DIC, again, stands for Disseminated Intravascular Coagulation, which is important. We're going to talk about that. Um, but some other acronyms that people have used, or they've used that acronym and, and renamed it or um, given the letters different meanings. And I remember the very first one I learned, um, even before I was in vet school, was that DIC stood for Death is Coming. <laughs> right? It's kind of dark. Um, another one I've heard is it stands for Dead in Cage. Also quite dark. So what, it doesn't sound like there's a good outcome usually. There can be, but it... it <laughs> And again, we'll talk about this a little bit later too. Kind of like you can win the lottery. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'd like to think we have slightly better odds than winning the lottery on helping patients that develop DIC. Um, But I think um, one of the the problems with DIC is it goes unrecognized early on in the syndrome. And again, we're going to talk more about that. But um, this is always secondary to another disease. Okay. And so... Can you treat it? Yes. The treatment for DIC, and this is really important, the treatment for DIC is treat the underlying disease, right? If you can cure whatever caused the oh, DIC. Treat the other thing. Yeah. Treat, treat what caused the DIC in the first place. Don't worry about it. Fix the does disease. It, does it, well, not don't worry about it. That's a little yeah. oversimplification because you have to deal with the consequences of it, but you can't treat per se DIC. You have to get the underlying cause under control. There are things you can do to mitigate it. You can, um, you know, put a Band-Aid on it and, and we can chat a little bit, but most of the time those don't work very well. The only real thing that can help with DIC is get to the root of the problem, whatever the underlying thing. And, and 
the there is a common theme of the diseases that are known to lead to DIC, and that is they are severe systemic inflammatory diseases. So any disease in theory that causes severe inflammation that is not local, it's not like you stub your toe and that's swollen, um, but like body-wide inflammation. Too many carbs. <laughs> no, definitely not that. Oh, gluten, too much gluten. Definitely not that either. Um, That's a different inflammation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, not, it would be severe. So severe trauma, if you got into a car accident or your dog got hit by a car, that could potentially lead to it. Um, bad pancreatitis, pneumonia, any sort of infectious um, you know, disease, any type of septic infection. So bad bacterial infection that gets widespread throughout the body. Those are sort of classic examples of things that can lead to, um, to so animals are usually in bad shape to begin with. Yes. Yes. And then this, so rather than being, um, this is like a new thing. This is almost like on the progression of the disease process. And so, um, what'll happen is the more severe, um, the disease is and the further along in the progression, there's a development of DIC and it's probably on a spectrum, um, per se, like, the more severe your inflammation is, the more likely and more quickly you'll develop DIC or the more severe the DIC itself will be. Um, but, sorry, our cat's doing something weird in the background. Are you chewing on my stuff? Yeah, he's just okay. smelling pencils. Okay, he's weird. It's distracting because now you're looking at him. <laughs> it's distracting me. Anyway, sorry about that. So DIC is, um, again, probably more of a, a marker of disease severity rather than... Um, this is definitely going to happen. But yes, it happens when things are already bad. Well, what happens? So as the name implies, disseminated, meaning widespread, intravascular, inside the blood vessels, coagulation, clot formation. That's what it means. So widespread clot formation inside the blood vessels. Why is that bad? Well, because your blood vessels are where blood is supposed to flow. And if they form little clots, little clumps that are solid, blood cannot flow. And if blood cannot flow, tissues don't get the blood and therefore the oxygen and nutrients that they need and tissues start to die. That can then set off a cascade of more inflammation and it can potentially uh, cause DIC as part of the entire complex of things, but one part of the inflammatory response to progress and get worse and get worse and, and it can expand from there. How do you know that this is happening, that little clots are forming? That's what makes DIC so tricky. So over, so that, that's basically what happens. The inflammatory process goes a little haywire, a little overboard, and part of that is triggering these little clots, these little microthrombi to form, and they cut off the you know, circulation to various organs. It's almost kind of like an autoimmune thing. It's not autoimmune per se, not like the immune system isn't attacking itself, but um, the immune system is going bonkers. Because it's working. It's like you're making too many clots. So imagine... So you need to make clots somewhere, but you're also you're, making them You're doing you them inappropriately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's kind of like there's just too much going on. Um, so imagine you are in charge of um, kind of cleanup or maintenance at a state park. And so, you know, you go around and you drive around every day and you're cleaning up and there's a little bit of garbage here. Most people pick up from themselves. So you're emptying the garbage and you pick up some stray garbage that flew out or somebody littered and that's terrible. But then the park hosts a festival, right? And so a bajillion people come in and start going crazy. Well, the cleanup, you can't keep up with it. Um, I don't know if that's a good analogy or not, but in my head, like I'm trying to explain like yeah. why, like too much of this is going on and we can't keep up with it. Um, 
And so think it's the immune system going a little bit haywire. And then there's offshoots you weren't even expecting, you weren't prepared for. Um, and so it's, it's not an autoimmune, like you're attacking yourself. That's what an autoimmune disease typically is. Like you say, Hey, that's a cell that I don't like. We need to get rid of it. And that's, I was like, no, 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 I'm one of you. Like we're, we're on the same team and the immune system is getting it wrong. This isn't the immune system necessarily getting it wrong. It's just going overboard. And then there's consequences for that. Do the clots happen around where the inflammation is happening so like if it's hit by a car and there's a wound and uh, an infection would the clot and say it's in the a front limb mm-hmm. um can you get a clot in the back limb or with would it DIC, happen yes just around the front so yeah it can around the front anywhere. limb around the front limb that might be an appropriate response right because you probably had local damage to the tissue and so blood vessels burst and so mm-hmm. you have to form clots otherwise you bleed to death clots save your life if they're localized so it can happen anywhere in the body yes and it does and it happens everywhere but it happens at a tiny microscopic level um which means capillaries that are one red blood cell thick essentially in diamond that's how big they are they're not they're not that big so it doesn't take a whole lot to clog them um and there's tons of them at each tissue and everyone that gets clogged means you're reducing the amount of blood flow to that tissue mm-hmm. but Does yes it, happen it happens in at distant sites veins and arteries or just in the capillaries um well it depends because clots can get bigger and bigger mm-hmm. and so they can expand um and it can be in either side of things it's a good question whether it's arterial or um, venous um, but it can be at either end but the capillaries are kind of where you know, the arteries get smaller and smaller and smaller until they become a capillary and then they get bigger and bigger, bigger on the venous side. Is that kind of why it goes unnoticed? You get, you don't notice it until it's in an artery, but it's already clogged or a bunch of capillaries or it never even has the chance to, the clot never even gets to a larger vessel, whether it's a vein or an artery, because again, at the capillary level, there's tons of tiny, tiny, tiny little clots. Um, and then you die because your organs fail. But in that process, okay, so one thing that's happening is instead of just forming clots, like in your analogy of the front leg, instead of just forming clots locally where the damage is, you're forming clots everywhere. Well, that has the effect of using up supplies, right? So in order to make clots, you need platelets and you need a bunch of proteins, okay? That's the simplified version of making clots. So lots of platelets, lots of um, clotting factors or proteins and a few other things that get built to make that clot. Well, when you're making a few clots over here, you got a big reserve capacity of platelets and of these proteins. But when you're making tons of these clots everywhere, you start to consume all of those. And your body, mostly the liver, but your body can't make enough to replenish what's being used. And so as DIC progresses um, and how quickly it progresses can depend again on the severity of the underlying disease, eventually you are making all these clots, but then you also start bleeding because you just don't have any supplies left. You, your platelets become low. Your clotting factors become low. In, so you're running out of supplies. This, unfortunately, is usually when we as clinicians recognize DIC. And at that point, it might already be too late, which is where acronyms like death is coming and dead in cage come from, is because we don't see the problem because those clots are teeny tiny little microclots that I don't know that they're happening. I, there are some things that I can look for to, to maybe hint that that's what's going on. But unless I have really fancy equipment, which we don't have and we don't use and certainly not on a bedside um, situation, we don't know about it. And until it's gotten to the point where you've consumed all of your, your clotting factors and your platelets, and now you have a patient who is bleeding. Maybe they've got bruising or petechia or ecchymoses, which are fancy terms for bruising, essentially. Um, or they might actually have true bleeding um, if you, you know, if you 
do some type of procedure that involves cutting tissues, they might have prolonged bleeding. And if you do um, various tests to see what are their clotting times, they might be prolonged because on you know the tests say it's taking too long for you to form a clot or your platelets might be low and that can have effect on, on various tests as well. But by at that, at that point, you're also still making those tiny clots, which is sort of mind blowing, I think, because I think most of the time when we think about coagulation, you're either forming clots or you're not forming clots, right? Most syndromes will, will say it's, you know, it's either prothrombotic or meaning it's, it's the balances are tilted toward making clots or it's tilted in the other direction to where you're not making enough clots and then you're bleeding. In DIC, depending on where you are on the spectrum, where things are in time, you might be doing both at the same time, which makes it really, really hard to manage. What causes, um, like, say you have internal bleeding somewhere and you mm-hmm. need to make a clot, mm-hmm. what uh, allows the clot to be localized? So it's like, oh, I need a clot here, but I don't need a clot anywhere else in my body. That's a good question. This is, this is a really good question. Okay, so it's actually what also... This is why I nerd out about coagulation stuff. It's a very elegant system. So everything you need... Almost, almost everything you need to form a clot is circulating in your blood, platelets mm-hmm. and clotting factors. Yeah, because if you take blood out into the air, yeah, you need it to it's clot. sticky and it clots. Yeah, exactly. That needs to happen right away. So there's a few things that will trigger that process. And in the body, um, the, the most important thing that will trigger that process is um, a protein called tissue factor. Tissue factor in normal healthy situations is expressed on tissues that are not inside the vasculature. But so um, it's highly expressed on like um, the tissues of organs. So like inside the capsule of a kidney, tons of tissue factor. So that if there's damage so to the something capsule. something gets of, in contact with yeah. the, the blood, it causes it to Exactly. Clot. And that starts something that Something that's process. not supposed to be there. Exactly. Something that's, so we, we have this nice separate system that says, okay, if there's damage to the blood vessel wall, as soon as you leave the blood vessel wall, the blood is going to come in contact with tissue factor. And that's going to boom, get that process started. Tissue factor is going to come into contact with factor seven. Um, they all got n- numbered and numbered out yeah, of it's order. It's almost like a two-part epoxy. When the two things mix together, they harden. Sure, yeah. yeah. I like that. There's a few more steps than that. Yeah. Um, but yes, so essentially it comes in contact. And then there's other things that are expressed on the inside of normal, healthy blood vessels that stop that, that are like, hey, hey, no clots here. We're good, yeah, we're, we're good, done. we're good. Because once that There's clot no starts, right? Something it, that shouldn't be you, here. But you need to form a big enough clot until the tissues can heal underneath. So it's it's a really, really cool, very elegant system um, that both works to very quickly stop that that hole, right? With that hole in the vessel, um, you know, break it, uh, or excuse me, build up the clot, localize it so that it doesn't get too big, too robust. Um, and then eventually break it down, which is fibrinolysis or the process where the clot gets broken down. Um, And that should happen within a couple of days. Um, It actually starts happening very, very slowly right away and then speeds up over time. So it's also about starting a process very, very quickly and then that slows down while another process starts slowly and speeds up so that the timing is all exactly how it should be Mm -hmm. if everything's going well. Interestingly, um, and this is also something that gets overlooked in um, people who think about DIC, is that early in that process where you have all these little tiny clots that are forming, your body also upregulates the system that breaks down those clots. So the fibrinolytic system is is actually also ramping things up. Um, so, hey, you were forming these clots and the body goes, we're not supposed to have clots there. And so it tries to break them down fairly quickly, which is depending again on how se- severe the underlying disease is, that the body can actually help keep things okay if we have time to get to the patient and fix the underlying problem. But during that, you're also consuming all these proteins. So it, it 
it costs you something, right? To build these clots and then break them down, you're using supplies. And so those can start to um, become consumed. And so DIC is often called a consumptive coagulopathy. Coagulopathy meaning a bleeding disorder, essentially, because you don't have enough clotting factors. That's a consumptive one because it's caused because you've consumed too many clotting factors. But again, that doesn't tell the whole story because it sort of skips over that whole first part of the syndrome where all the consumption was happening. And if we can recognize the, the syndrome in that stage, we have a better chance of identifying it, fighting it off, essentially. What's and the maybe presenting timing it. of that? That varies. It can be, that can all happen in a matter of potentially hours or, or days. Um, it's probably not going to happen is, over um, weeks. How common is this? Because you don't want to be like, have a student out there, oh, it's probably got this. And it's like, ah, oh, that's one in 10,000. No, so. it's, I don't know if we have any, um, if anybody's looking well, at the frequency it? of it. Um, I would say if you, it's a little, this is also a little distorted too, because I'm a criticalist. And so I'm right. working with the sickest patients in the hospital. And depending on how busy the hospital is, I would say it's something I'm concerned about. I don't know, maybe in 5% of the cases I deal with. All right, so fairly often. It's it's often enough that something you know students should be aware <laughs> yeah. of. You should know about it. Um, but you're not going to deal with it in every case. But you're also, what I want people to think about is, what are the cases where I should be on the lookout for this, right? Where, when should I be thinking about it? And so if I have a patient, again, with that s- severe systemic inflammation, particularly if I don't know what the underlying cause is, or even if I do and I know it's going to be hard to treat, I want... I want people to think about this. And so maybe we can capture DIC early in the, in the, uh, in its kind of progression. Um, and can I do more to do something about it? That's hard. It's, it's just the short version. It's actually really hard to do that. Um, but I think we'll do a better job if we're, if, if you're not looking for something, then you're going to have a hard time finding it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's really hard to treat it. So, um, it, it, it is something to be aware of, but it, it doesn't have to be, a harbinger of death. It doesn't have to be that if your patient gets this, it's definitely going to die. Um, but we we have very little evidence in veterinary medicine about what to do with it. Um, in human medicine, they haven't figured it out either. It's a problem even then. There's some people that have done a ton of work on this. Um, and so there are some things to try. But again, I think the most important thing is recognizing it early and, and saying, hey, this is a sign that things are really, really bad. And I need to treat this patient very aggressively. Like whatever I'm doing, I, if I can, I need to step up my game um, to try to treat this patient or support it through this more aggressively than I am now, if possible. It might not be possible. You might already be doing everything you can. Um, but it, it certainly is a, like if, for example, you have a patient who you think is septic um, and then, you know, a day goes by and you're like, wow, they're looking worse and they're developing signs that are consistent with DIC. I might say, you know what, I'm waiting for the culture results, but I don't, I don't have time. Um, I might have to ramp up my antimicrobial coverage empirically. I might say I need to, to step up and say whatever I'm doing isn't, I don't know if it's not working, but it's not working quickly enough. Maybe I need to make a change to that plan, or maybe I need to be more aggressive with um, other other support that I'm doing. So if you have an animal that's getting worse faster than you would expect, right? you think like maybe this is yeah. an underlying thing. Or if, if, this, if I think this is an underlying thing and I didn't already recognize that things were going poorly, that should be a huge red flag. There maybe are some things we should do early in the process, and this is where the the literature is not clear cut. And I think the reason it's not clear cut is that the they there isn't a predictable progression. Meaning, it's not like once you get DIC over the next three days, this is what is going to happen at this rate. The rate is very different in patient to patient, so it's hard to do studies to say are this is what you should do. Patients that are more at risk, like a 
overweight or older or pre-existing conditions? That is a good breeds? question. There certainly are going to be in, in human medicine, there are going to be people who are at greater risk for thrombosis or inappropriate clot formation. Um, does that increase their risk of developing DIC? Not of developing DIC that I'm aware of, but probably of the consequences to DIC. Um, none of those, I, I don't think we know in animals uh, because we don't really have a lot of information on what are those risk factors. But I would say just the severity of the inflammation is probably going to be the biggest contributing factor. And then if you have other, like if you have pre-existing kidney injury, your kidneys are already broken and then you cut off more blood supply to the kidneys, you're in worse shape. Um, but not that they are more prone to getting DIC, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, good questions though. I'm impressed with your questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so what else? Uh, I guess we can talk a little bit about how, how do you guess, quote unquote diagnose yeah, what it. A, so you get an animal come in, mm-hmm. I'll give you a hypothetical. You get an animal come in, it's got a uh, bunch of problems mm-hmm. with the inflammation and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do differently? Whether it has like, yeah, what do you do differently? If it has like just a bunch of inflammation well, say, or I'm worried about like, DIC uh, developing or if, if I you, you think can't it has detect DIC. DIC. Can you detect uh, DIC? Again, it's a syndrome. Um, right. I can look for evidence that suggests it's happening. Um, should you always look for that in high? You um, should, yeah, you should have a high index of suspicion for that. And what would you do to? That is where the jury is out. But what I would consider personally is early, early on in those diseases, those highly inflammatory diseases, um, where I think it's going to take time to treat. Like that, I know what the maybe I know what the disease is, and um, I can treat it, or maybe I don't. But so that means it's going to take me longer if I don't know what the disease is. I might consider um, treating that patient with anticoagulants. Mm-hmm. Right, so something like heparin might be a reasonable and then you consideration. Just have to be careful when you do surgery, and then I have to be careful. Things along the yeah, so um, and so there are a number of scenarios where that might be a reasonable sort of prophylactic thing to do in high risk patients. We do not right now in veterinary medicine have good studies for when, especially in in diseases that might. Uh, predisposed to DIC, should we be doing this? But that's extrapolating from human medicine. I think it's a reasonable thing to consider. And I'll be honest, I think we don't do enough of that in veterinary medicine, largely because of lack of evidence. Um, uh, But I think when you extrapolate from the human medicine and when you understand the physiology, it's a reasonable thing to consider. Especially something that level. And it's fairly low risk. It's blood. Blood is the same for a lot of the animals? Yes. Like not- yeah, the process is the same. Yeah. Like the proteins are the same. How we form clots is the same. Yeah, actually coagulation is one of the most conserved biologic yeah, processes like in animals. It's not like a stomach that's very yeah. different. If you're talking about mammals. Now, if I, and which is, yeah, the that's what I work on. If I, I, don't, I don't know about this in other species. Um, I know about this in dogs and cats. Sorry to the other species. It's not that I don't care about you. I just, I don't work with you that much. Anyhow, um, so... Oh, I had I had a, another thought on that, and it was a really good one. I'm pretty sure I don't remember what it is now. All right, I'll um, another question. Yeah. So, you got the animal. You don't know if it has it. Um. So I, the the thing with so I can oh this is what I was going to say. This is the profound thought. Get ready for this. If you're not sitting, you should sit. <laughs> so when it comes to like treating a patient that I think has DIC with heparin, the big risk, the big adverse effect that can happen with heparin is that they don't form clots appropriately, which is my goal, but then that can lead to bleeding. I can treat bleeding. Bleeding is comparatively easy to treat, right? I can give blood products. I can transfuse you. I mean, when I say easy, I don't, I guess maybe I should say it's simple to treat. It's Um, doable. I can do that. That is the thing. There are red blood cells in this bag over here, and I can give those to this patient over here. This is a well-established protocol. Transfusion doesn't have a uh, 
acronym for dead and cage. It doesn't. No, it does have its risks and it's not risk free. Um, but I know how to do that. If you're bleeding, I can, I can give you cells. I can do things to stop the bleeding, whether it's a surgical bleed, right? If, if I've cut you, I can tie off a bleeder. I can cauterize it or I can use suture. Like bleeding, and I don't mean to oversimplify it because like massive amounts of bleeding, like it, it's a reason that individuals die, especially after trauma. Bleeding is a real issue, but it has a, a, a relatively straightforward treatment plan. Clotting, on the other hand, it's also usually fairly easy to recognize. Not always, but it's like, it, you, oh, look, there is blood outside of the vessels. We have a problem. I need to address this. And there's either this was traumatic, meaning there was damage to the vessel, or there was spontaneous bleeding, which means I have a clotting issue. So, you know, you can, you can follow it fairly logically, but because those tiny little clots are hidden, it's hard to find. And then once they're there, they're so hard to treat. Once a clot has formed, it's so hard to treat. And so that's why I tend to err on the side of, if I'm early in the game and I can give heparin or some other anticoagulant to prevent the clots from forming, even though bleeding is a risk, I can deal with bleeding so much better than I can deal with clotting. That's, that's the, the, the basic approach that I sort of take until we get better at identifying and treating inappropriate clot formation. That's, that's the side I'm going to fall on most of the time. Um, and I don't mean to, to play that down and that it's, oh, it's no risk, whatever. But um, again, comparatively, way easier to deal with yeah. than a lot of clots. What are some examples of cases that like it comes in that you would go ahead, like the level of case? It's like, oh, I should start worrying about the DIC with this, yeah. like um, hit by a car or just like a bite on the leg. So or- bite on the leg, probably not. Hit by car, um, usually not because the good thing about a hit by car, it's a weird thing to say. The good thing about that is the injury has happened um, and they're not sustaining further injury versus like an infection the bug is still in there, whether that's a virus or a bacteria or a fungus, the bug is still there wreaking havoc where the trauma um, has happened. And now the body is already saying, okay, we've kind of hit our peak usually within a day or so. And then it starts to heal. Not that that can't happen, but I'm probably less inclined, um, especially with trauma, because they probably already have damaged blood vessels to heparinize that patient. But um, so, like the first thing that comes to mind is a bad pancreatitis. Pancreatitis is a disease where the pancreas, which produces all um, these enzymes to digest your food, they'll start to leak out where they're not supposed to, and it starts to digest tissues that it shouldn't be digesting and it causes a yeah, lot of what pain do you mean and inflammation. By a bad pancreatitis. Do you mean like it's been going on for a while and no, hasn't been brought in? I mean or? a very, very sick dog with pancreatitis. So pancreatitis can also fall on a spectrum of like, oh, they're kind of, they feel crummy and they're vomiting so a little bit. So you do it by how the dog how severe is they acting. Are. Yeah, severe pancreatitis. Um, and so a really sick, very, very painful pancreatitis case um, is one that I would be worried about it in. Um, a bad pneumonia. And again, bad, just like, okay, walking pneumonia where the animal can breathe okay, it doesn't need supplemental oxygen, maybe can be treated on an outpatient basis. That's not one that I'm going to worry about it. But the one that needs to be in the hospital sort of gasping for air. So usually the animal shouldn't be moving much when you're worried about this oh yeah so like, like if you're worried about heparinizing them they're yeah yeah, injure themselves. Want, yeah you don't want to get people like oh uh, no dr connor said on vet talk to give okay. like oh it's got this thing it might have dic give it some heparin no and this is suddenly only going to be in hospitalized heparin. patients this is this is hospitalized patients that are very very sick um which means it's about the safest environment is you can give anticoagulants like heparin so no you're not going to be doing you're not going to be sending patients home with anticoagulants to treat dic this is a patient that needs to be in the hospital if it doesn't need to be in the hospital i'm not that worried about the development of dic or its underlying disease yeah, it condition. seems like it'd be um a little safer to give the thing because if they're already down where they're not moving around a lot. You yeah. don't have to worry about them like a puppy right. running, running around. around and yeah. Don't play scratch. football when yeah. you're on heparin. Yeah. Right. So it's actually really funny because I say this all the time. I've, I've given a lot of heparin in my career and I almost never 
deal with the bleeding. It doesn't, it's just not that big of a risk in my mind. And again, I don't, I'm not trying to play this down to be like, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Dr. Connor said it never happens, but it, it's pretty darn uncommon, especially if you're dosing because the it appropriately. Because patients are giving it aren't, they're yeah, just exactly. sitting there anyway. Yeah. And so you're not doing, now the surgeons don't like it because they're going to go in and cut things and they're like, yeah. uh, bleeding is a problem for us. Um, but, um, but I still feel like clotting is a worse problem. Clotting is always worse. Bleeding is easier to manage. And again, if there's not additional challenges to that patient. So if it's on heparin and you don't challenge it by poking it with needles or cutting it with knives, it's not the it, spontaneous bleeding is not a risk that I'm overly concerned about. I'm aware of it and I'm thinking about it, but I'm not like, oh my God, I'm biting my nails. Like, oh my gosh, when's it going to bleed? I'm not. It's not what I've experienced. Um, not, not to say that it can't happen and it doesn't happen, um, but it's also pretty darn easy for me to treat it. So. So it seems like, Maybe a lot of the reasons why you have um, the like bad prognostics for this thing is when you do successfully treat it, you don't even know that you had it. Probably. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I, I think that's largely true. Yeah, you got lucky um, in it. Because it's, it's almost yeah. like the, a system crashing. It's not, yeah. it's not the cause of death, but it... Uh, it, it's it's like sped it up. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. It'll speed things up and makes it harder to get over from, you know, to, to recover from this. But the body does, like I said, it, it will ha- put mechanisms in place to try to compensate for it while it's happening to give your, your you know, the patient a chance. Um, and sometimes, you know, the disease is too bad. Sometimes the primary disease is too bad and there's not much that you can really do. But, um, but again, I would, I would say if you're not thinking about it, then you don't even have the chance to do anything about it. The best chance to do something about it is early in the, in the process. And again, in that stage when maybe I can give anticoagulants, once they've got to the point where they're bleeding, right? So they're, I know they're still forming clots if they have DIC, but now they're also bleeding, which means to stop the bleeding, I have to give them clotting factors, but I'm not doing anything to stop the clotting. So am I giving them heparin while they're bleeding, which would enhance bleeding? That That's where it gets messy. Um, so if, and, and most of the tests, when, and I, when I say tests, how do we diagnose DIC? There's usually like, okay, if you check the, you have the, run all these blood tests. And if you have, you know, three out of six, then that's consistent with DIC. That's the quote unquote diagnosis, yeah, which isn't really a diagnosis. Things. Yeah. It's not even really a diagnosis. It's like, oh yeah, that could be consistent with DIC. It also could be consistent with seven other things. Um, and I think we misdiagnose DIC a lot because of that. Um, but also we miss most of the patients because all of those, te- almost all of those tests are an indication of the consumption. So low platelet count, thrombocytopenia is one of the tests. Prolonged clotting times, PT or PTT, are two, that's two checkboxes right there. Well, we're, by definition, we're only going to catch the patients that have gotten past the point um, where now they are in the consumptive phase, which means we miss them back when they um, were just forming the clots, which was my best opportunity to do something. Um, and so there are other tests that we could potentially do. Um, they're not readily available everywhere. Uh, thromboelastography is one or some other viscoelastic testing, which is um, testing that's done on whole blood to say, hey, how quickly is this clot forming? And then how robust, how strong is that clot? And that can give us some insight into like too much clotting potentially. There's too many proteins out there. They're overactive and they're forming clots too quickly and too much. Um, but those again, aren't readily available. So it, a lot of times it, it really does just come down to clinical suspicion. Is this a patient where you're worried about it? I, I can't tell you, yes, you should definitely give heparin or no, you shouldn't, but I would say maybe you should consider it. 
um, if you're working with those types of patients. Um, if you're in a hospital where you don't have a 24-7 ICU, you should probably consider referring that case. That's a case that you're probably not going to be able to manage in, if you don't have um, that type. If you don't have an ICU, you probably can't manage this case. Is this the sort of thing so it's like you've treated all the problems with the Mm-hmm, the pancreatitis. So you've done all the uh-huh. all the stuff in the main thing, and then your patient still mm-hmm. isn't getting better. Mm-hmm. This is it's a damage that's already done. Kind um, of thing. It's not that you can't recover, but that's but it, that but could it, be like yeah. one of the main causes. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely so. so it's, it's probably like the one of the reasons. Thing mm-hmm. finished and completed, but right. it's still doing poor. It's like I don't understand. I did everything you're supposed right. to do. So pancreatitis is you know problem in the pancreas, but if you get DIC, you now have damage to the kidneys. You now have damage to the heart. You now have damage to the brain. You now have damage to the liver. It's damp because you're again you've got all these clots. It almost seems kind of like um, like. Uh, if you're you had an infection or something mm-hmm. in your throat mm-hmm. and it caused your esophagus to close and you couldn't breathe, you didn't, you died of suffocation. Flip that. You, you breathe through your trachea, oh, not your esophagus. Trachea. But yeah, that's yeah, okay. Not, not a doctor. I know, I know, but I just want to make sure everybody out there, I'm just calling um, you're okay. <laughs> but yeah, okay, so your throat you, closes you because of a problem nearby. Suffocation, right. but it was the infection right. that closed yeah, your exactly. breathe hole. Right. <laughs> your breathing hole. Yeah. Your breathe hole, your blowhole. Um, no, you're saying like, why did you actually die? So there, there are three reasons that any patient will die. You, you can't breathe, your heart stops beating, your brain stops working. That's it. So when you die of kidney failure, you don't die because your kidneys failed. Your kidneys failed, which then led to the buildup of toxins, which stopped your heart from, and, from beating. And that's when you die. Like you die from one of those three things. So yeah, it's kind of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, you died, all these things start to go together. So DIC can lead to what gets referred to as MODS, M-O-D-S, multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. And again, all of your organs are shutting down. It's one of the common things that happens before people die. Um, and then, you know, finally, when the last of your organs, heart, lungs, brain, give out one of one or all of those, then you're, you're done. Um, so Is yeah. there any, um, so it's like, let's say I've treated all the pancreatitis. It's great. My patient's still doing bad. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure it has um, DIC. Is mm-hmm. there any like, is there anything I can do like in the show Lost where he would punch the guy in the chest and he would just come back to life? No. No. Also, the uh, <laughs> the precordial thump that you're referring to, yeah. there's a reason I stopped watching that show. I didn't get into it after like two episodes. But anyhow. They so do it hundreds of times. I'm sure works. they do because on television, those things do in fact work, um, but they don't work in real life. There is, Jack just there is maybe one you. case. Yeah, he's probably, he probably is. Um, uh, so the precordial thump, it's been written about. There's obviously zero studies on it because if you were. Because it works. It's 100%. I've seen it on Lost. <laughs> okay. Um, if you'll buy that. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, no, there isn't a thing like that. No. Is Sorry. there any treatment that you can do or is it? Um, if, if age? you're, if your pancreatitis, if you've done everything you can to treat the pancreatitis and they're not getting better, there's not going to be much else. There are things, again, put band-aids on this, try to treat that, treat the pain, treat the inflammation, give them fluids, give them blood pressure support and give them heparin to maybe prevent the DIC from worsening, give them plasma if now they're, you know, consumptive, give them platelet transfer, all those things. You're putting a band-aid on it. But if things are getting worse... Sometimes patients are going to die no matter what you do. Yeah, because the damage is already done. The yeah, damage happened. Well, if if the inflammation has stopped and it's getting better, the body has an amazing capacity to heal. But if that inflammatory process hasn't stopped, no, you're you're not going to get better from that. 
Like that has to stop. Um, but sometimes you get in this vicious circle, right? So maybe the pancreatitis is actually no longer the primary issue, but now it's the kidney failure from all the clots that formed. That's what can get you into trouble. But if that primary disease isn't getting better, you're, you're, you're toast. Yeah, so there's no clot buster. No, like There are quote-unquote clot busters, but you don't use them in DIC because that would lead to massive bleeding. Because again, there's tiny little clots everywhere. It's, it's a mess. There isn't yeah. a great treatment per se for DIC because it's a syndrome. Um, which is the important thing. Syndrome, you just support them and hope that um, the underlying disease can Try get better. Try to prevent them from happening. Yeah, yeah. You know, don't let your dog get hit by a car. Try not to let it get pneumonia. Um, easier said than done a lot of the time, right? But um, yeah. One can be done with a leash. Yes, uh, yes. Use leashes all the time. I don't care how good you think your dog is. Please have it on a leash. It's just, I'm not impressed. Your dog, oh, look at your dog. Doesn't he put it on a leash? Spoken from a critic list. I promise leashes save lives. Leashes save lives. Is that a hashtag? It should be. Why would you bring that up and send me off on that rant? Okay. Uh, Anything I think that's else? Probably, well, I'm sure, yeah. I mean, I could go on and on and on about this stuff. Um, but if you have questions about anything we talked about today, please send us a message. Um, if you have, you know, we could, we could, Follow up on this. I'm sure people are dying to follow up on this. Yeah, one. they can follow um, up. Are they can bring up their own can, topic? Yeah, yeah. If you have a case that you thought maybe um, that could have been something that was going on, you or want you to talk just, about yeah, it? You didn't know yeah, anything that was going know. on. Bobby didn't um, know. If there was something that I said that was confusing or not clear, um, we can always bring that up again. Um, but I think that's enough on DIC for now. Hopefully, cool. everybody understands it a little bit better now. That would be the goal. Um, so, all right. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, again, please uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Vet Journal Club or send us emails with show ideas, questions, comments at veterinaryjournalclub at gmail.com. Otherwise, thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye.